1: Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. On day 136 of the coronavirus crisis, stocks tank on fears the market is overvalued and the economy will take
2: longer to recover. It's one of the most overvalued markets, maybe the second most overvalued I've ever seen. David Tepper, the man that moves markets, strikes again. We are seeing attacks on some university research into COVID related Uh, The American government's new warning for pharma and biotech companies. China's coming for your information and more. And the scientist who wants to start injecting the live virus. He's with us with one of his volunteers. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. And welcome. Good to have
1: you with us on this Wednesday night after a second straight sell-off on Wall Street. Let's get our very first look at futures now. Early, of course, and right now they are higher. A tough day, though. Stocks fell sharply after the Federal Reserve chairman said more may be needed to support the economy. The Dow falling for the third straight day, this time more than 500 points. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq off more than one and a half percent. Energy and financials were the worst performing sectors in the S&P today. One big reason for the drop perhaps comments from one of the most respected investors in the world. David Tepper was with me today on the Halftime Report.
3: It's definitely, as of yesterday, and on the markets down from yesterday, um, I would say that, you know, 99 was more overvalued, 99, 2000. But, uh, yeah, I would say it's one of the most overvalued markets, maybe the second most overvalued I've ever seen. The market is pretty high, and the Fed's put a lot of money in here, and it's a uh, question, has there been different misallocations of capital in the markets. And certainly you're seeing pockets of that now in the stock market. Um, And the market is by anybody's standards, pretty full. I think that, you know, uh, that the bottom is in, I think probably if the situation remains, you know, if we're just dealing with a virus and there's no other issues that come up.
1: That was David Tepper for more on today's Big Drop. Mike Santoli with us once again. Mike, good to see you when David Tepper speaks. People tend to listen. What do you make of his comments today?
3: Well, I do think uh, it spoke to a lot of the sentiment that uh, if you're looking at near-term fundamentals, the aggregate corporate earnings power of this, uh, of this market, you really can't make a great case for being at these levels or for, to have this rally continue. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, clearly, a 35% run off the lows uh, did build in a fair bit of optimism, at least in those leading stocks. I do think one difference today, though, the weak stuff that you mentioned, like banks, like energy, like the travel stocks, they've been weak for a while. They stayed weak today. The difference today was the leading tech stocks have taken a breather. They're down 3 or 4% off their highs, and therefore it kind of exposed some of the underlying weakness in the, in the broader market because they've been sort of protecting and insulating the indexes uh, to a large degree over the last several weeks. At the same
1: time, David Tepper said, Mike, that he wasn't short the market, making the case it's still hard to bet against the market given the fact that the Fed has injected so much liquidity into the situation?
3: Sure. I mean, the Fed has is, uh, is basically said that there isn't really a limit to what it is willing to do. Zero uh, percent rates, as uh, far as the eye can see at this point, and trillions being, being put into securities every day. So it's obviously, that's the support. That's the cushion. The bigger question is, um, can we try to handicap exactly when this economy might get rolling again so that it's something more than just Federal Reserve support. That's the the big question. And really, there's not a lot of change in the substantive facts on the ground that people are trying to evaluate. It's more a matter of tone. I think when the market was five to 10 percent lower a few weeks ago, uh, you could look on the bright side and say maybe we can uh, we can build in some expectation of a reopening. Well, we're five five to 10 percent higher in the S&P 500. Maybe it's a higher threshold for what represents incremental good news at these levels.
1: Pretty stark comments as well from the Federal Reserve chairman today, too, playing a role, I think, as well. Mike, thank you very much. That's Mike Santoli reporting for us tonight. Meantime, the FBI issuing a warning today. Chinese hackers targeting American universities and drug companies to steal and disrupt coronavirus research. Our Eamon Jabber standing by tonight with CNBC contributor Sue Gordon. She's the former deputy director for national intelligence. Eamon?
4: Yes, Scott, thanks. And Sue, you are exactly the right person to talk to about this because you are one of the nation's highest ranking intelligence officials. and You spent decades in the CIA. This sort of public service announcement we saw today from the FBI and DHS, these are fairly common documents. But this one comes amid a global pandemic and it accuses the Chinese of attempting to hack into the vaccine data that drug companies and universities are collecting. What does that tell you about the level of concern inside U.S. intelligence, Sue?
5: Yeah. So I think it's interesting in a in a couple of ways. Number one, it's reflective of uh, the reality of cyber attacks and that they are attacking the private sector and the populace, not constraining themselves to the government. And so what you're seeing is an increasing trend of law enforcement and intelligence going directly to the private sector and the American people and saying this threat is directed at you and you need to take some decisions. So I think that's what you're really seeing. The second is that we know we've been talking about cyber threats for years, but it costs resources to go against it. And so by calling out pharma and universities, you're saying it's not just general threat activity. This is threat activity directed at you and you must take action in order to protect yourself. I think it's remarkable and I think it's a good trend.
4: So, does politics play any role in this? There were a lot of cynics out there today who said, well, this just comes right as the president happens to be ramping up his rhetoric against the Chinese around the virus. Is, is this linked to that or, or is this just a coincidence, this timing?
5: Uh, I, I think this is a trend that's been going for the past two or three years. If you recall, with the 2018 election, you saw a similar sort of direct uh, threat uh, announcement This is just trying to reach the people who are making the decisions and are conducting the activity that our adversaries are going against. So there may be a political piece, but I also think this is much more the reality of where we see the attacks and who has the responsibility to protect against them.
4: And let me ask you about something a national security official told me today that was pretty alarming. This official said, there's concern here that this isn't just about trying to steal the vaccine. If the Chinese can get into these databases, they could manipulate the data or they could fry the servers themselves. That is, they could prevent the United States from being first to a vaccine. Does that seem reasonable to you, given your decades of intelligence experience that the Chinese might be trying to block the U.S. from getting a vaccine? Or is that concern overblown, do you think?
5: No, I think I think the economic stakes are so high, and certainly we know that cyber can be used to disrupt and deny and to destroy. And so I don't think it is an unreasonable concern uh, that they would come in and trying to get an economic advantage would slow their competitors through some sort of manipulation um, of attack. I, I, I think that that is a reasonable concern, given what we know.
4: Sue Gordon, so fascinating to talk to you about this tonight. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to us. see you, Eamon. Scott, I'll
1: toss it back over to you. All right, Amen. I appreciate it. That's Eamon Javers, the former deputy director, uh, as well joining us. Our thanks to you both tonight. Breaking in the last hour as well, Wisconsin Supreme Court has thrown out the governor's extended stay-at-home order, saying he overstepped his authority. Still not clear when the state will reopen for business. However, Iowa lifting restrictions on all 99 counties starting tomorrow, with certain health guidelines in place since that state began to open May 1st. It has seen new cases rising, more than 80 percent testing there, nearly doubling. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, a CNBC contributor, former head of the FDA. As you know, Dr. Gottlieb, as always, good to see you. Let's begin there. Wisconsin, the state Supreme Court ruling as it did. Your reaction there, along with Iowa lifting its restrictions, even though cases there continue to rise. Well, look, the national trend is actually encouraging. If you
6: look at the data over the last two weeks and you exclude New York, where we've seen sustained declines in new cases, you're actually seeing a slowing across nations. Cases starting to come down even as testing goes up. Positivity rates coming down and also hospitalizations coming down. But there are states where cases are going up. Minnesota, Nebraska, Missouri, Alabama, Arizona, Wisconsin, to your point, Uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas, you are seeing cases go up in those states. So it's a mixed bag, but the overall trend's in a positive direction nationally. And we are going to see cases go up as these states reopen. What we really should be focused on is not the new cases, per se, um, because they're going to be confounded by the fact that we're testing a lot more, so we're capturing more cases. We should be looking at hospitalizations, um, but there's about an eight-day lag on hospitalizations. So the time to hospitalizations from the time you get diagnosed or you get the infection to get hospitalized, is about eight days. And so it's really going to take a week or so until we see
1: an uptick as a consequence of these states reopening, if there's going to be one. You wrote in Time Magazine today, let's talk about testing now, because I want to get to some comments you made today. Quote, we're in for a long fight. We'll face a persistent risk, maybe until we get a vaccine or even after. You say the key is being able to test large numbers of people with a reliable test, one we don't have yet, do we?
6: Well, we have reliable tests. We need to deploy the technology for the right purpose. We have point-of-care tests like the Abbott machine, which isn't that sensitive. It has a high false negative rate, meaning sometimes it says you don't have the infection when you do. We have the antigen test that was just cleared by FDA. These can be available in quantities of millions, literally, on a weekly basis. Those are good tests in the hands of doctors. We have tests like the PCR-based platforms, which is what we've been relying on, which are slower platforms but give a more accurate result. And then we have these platforms that could provide massive testing at places like a worksite, where you don't need to test everyone. What you could be doing is taking pooled samples, so you might get 50 employees um, to spit in canisters, and then you test all 50 employees at the same time. And if you find a positive result, then you go, in, you go back and test each person individually. That could provide massive throughput where you could be testing the entire workforce on a regular basis for relatively inexpensive. And so you need to deploy the technology for the right purpose, and we need to start doing that. So far, we've just relied on these PCR-based tests, and we need to broaden the technology that we're
1: using. You mentioned the Abbott test. Uh, there was a study today suggesting, and this is the one the White House is using, that it may not be as reliable, Dr. Gottlieb's first thought. I'm wondering how concerned we should be by that and whether we know if the president or the vice president have been tested using this machine. Well, we don't know what the president's
6: being uh, being tested with, what machine they're using. They might be reflexing to a PCR-based test, but we do know that staff and visitors are being tested using that Abbott machine. And what this study showed is that that had a false um, negative rate of about 30 percent. So people were tested with the Cepheid gene expert, which is a very effective, very sensitive and specific point of care test. It takes a little longer. And I think that's why the White House doesn't like it. Getting a result takes 45 minutes. The Abbott machine can get a result in five to 15 minutes. But about one third of the tests that the Cepheid gene expert identified as having uh, coronavirus The Abbott Machine Missed. But we know that about the Abbott Machine. That's why it's good in the hands of a doctor's office where if the doctor suspects someone's going to has coronavirus, if you get a negative result, you might retest that person. But for
1: routine screening of asymptomatic people, it's not the right tool. Let me get your reaction as well quickly, if I could. Rick Bright, he's the former vaccine chief, uh, ousted. Um, He is going to warn tomorrow in testimony that we we are facing potentially the darkest winter in modern history. Those are the words he, uh, he will apparently use if the virus returns and we don't have a strategy in place. I wonder your comments about that. And we're also learning of his replacement tonight. Well,
6: Monsef Slawi was appointed to a position overseeing vaccine development generally. I I wouldn't necessarily say he's Rick Wright's replacement. I think he's going to play more of a policy role, more of of a quarterbacking role across the different parts of the government. I know Monsef well. I, I worked for him for five years when he was at GSK and I was on their product investment board. Look, Rick Wright's comments represent a possible outcome here in that if the virus does come back in the fall, And collides with flu season, we could have a very difficult season, Uh, even with a couple of therapeutics in our toolbox without a vaccine and without a really effective therapeutic. This could become epidemic again. I don't think that that's a fate that we have to suffer. I think there's a lot we can do to mitigate that if we make the right decisions now and get the right tools and testing in place and right public health interventions. But it's certainly a possibility that we could be facing a large epidemic this coming winter if we don't make the right decisions and do the right things now. Dr.
1: Gottlieb wants you to stay with me. I'm going to take a quick break because coming up next, we have a scientist who wants to inject people with COVID 19. And one of his volunteers will join us as well. Before the break, images from across the nation on day 136 of the coronavirus crisis. Welcome back. More headlines tonight on day 136 of this crisis. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy says April revenue for the state was down nearly 60 percent. Amazon will extend wage increases and double overtime pay for its warehouse and delivery workers through the end of the month, but confirmed to CNBC it will end those policies in June. Volkswagen plans to resume U.S. production at its Tennessee plant on May 17th. 16,000 volunteers are lining up to be infected with COVID-19. That's right, you heard that right. Their goal is to speed up development of a vaccine. With us tonight is Professor Nir Eyal. He is director of Rutgers University Center for Population Level Bioethics and Gabrielle Kleinwalks. She volunteered for that trial. It's great to have both of you with us tonight. Nir, I begin with you. Tell us about what you hope to do and why. Thank you for having us. Uh, challenge
7: trials are uh, trials where volunteers are exposed to the virus, uh, and then we know very quickly whether the vaccine some of them got works better than the placebo that others got. It works much better than, much faster than standard efficacy trials, and we think that in this case, I'm a professor of ethics, there is a strong ethical case for conducting these trials, not only because of the obvious utility of getting to a vaccine faster, but also because participation, which initially when you think about it, it sounds so dangerous It's actually much less risky than you think. It's as risky or less risky than kidney donation that nobody would oppose because when done with informed consent for a good cause, uh, we don't meddle in people's
1: decisions to do it. Gabrielle, I know our viewers who are watching this segment right now are wondering what you must be thinking. Why would you want to do this?
8: I felt that I had a responsibility. I was... Very convinced by estimates, I saw that um, even developing a vaccine one day sooner would save thousands of lives. Um, So I thought that this was probably the most important thing I could do at this point in time. Maybe the most important thing I will ever do in my lifetime.
1: Aren't you afraid?
8: Well, of course I am. But I think that it's not... I never want to downplay how dangerous the virus is, but I think that first of all, um, volunteering for this trial is more important than my fear. And secondly, I think that the risk to any person of just contracting the virus by walking around outside and catching it randomly um, in a totally uncontrolled environment is actually in some ways a greater risk than being exposed to the virus in a controlled environment in under very close medical observation um, with like true medical quarantine imposed on the volunteers. So uh, I think that there are a lot of risks that are worse for people everywhere than being one of the trial volunteers. Um, but I really do want to emphasize that, that it's also important for me to overcome that fear.
1: Yeah, Nir, you, you're not a medical doctor, correct? Correct. So how do you discount the potential risks of a virus that is novel, so many things about it are unknown, and so many age groups, and even some that weren't thought to be uh, at risk at the beginning, seemingly are now?
7: Great question. Um, epidemiologists are looking at the numbers that we have so far, and they give us, There are these tables that everybody, so WHO last week came out kind of endorsing challenge trials. There are two other papers recently after we published ours that came to the same conclusion. And everybody is citing a recent uh, table from the group at Imperial College London that um, checked how many deaths are there in every age group from COVID-19. So if you have COVID-19, if you get infected, what happens to you? And the bottom line is, we don't know the mechanisms. We don't know why it happened. We don't know um, which individuals exactly will be affected. But in the only age group that people are thinking of recruiting, the death rate is about one in 3,000, which happens to be the exact death rate from live kidney donation that nobody would oppose. But the difference is, Everybody is thinking of recruiting only people without comorbidities, healthy people in these age groups in whom the death rate should be lower than that. And, as Gabrielle mentioned, there are some indirect benefits from participation. I wouldn't play them up too much, certainly not the informed consent process. I would mainly try to inform the volunteers of how dangerous this really is. They could die. Nobody will deny that. As I would in a kidney donation process, I would give a very, very somber picture of what this is about and let the person make their decision on their own.
1: Does, does do, do the volunteers get paid?
7: Nobody determined that yet. Um, we don't have a protocol in place. So it could go in different ways. My own opinion, I would rather in this case not to pay except, of course, for any expenses arising from the trial if there is travel to the station or if, heaven forbid, there is an accident and they have medical expenses. I don't want this to be a money-making kind of operation, not so much because there is some fundamental ethical problem in my view, but because I want to make sure that there is full public trust in this, that this trial is done in the cleanest, purest possible way with multiple levels of review, with very, very rigorous processes to ensure that people comprehend the risks, internalize them, they know what they're getting into, just because so much is at stake.
1: And Gabrielle, I'm I'm guessing your family may have weighed in on on your decision here. What are they saying?
8: Yeah, um, they did weigh in. I, you know, my my parents expressed their concerns to me. Um, They, they of course, are worried for my safety. um, But they're also very proud of me. And they made sure to emphasize that. And, you know, it is because these are the values that I was raised with to be um, to care about the welfare of others and to be empathetic and to, you know, be willing to put myself out there for other people. The, the value that saving a, a human life is the most important thing you can do. So I think in a lot of ways, this is actually um, the result of my upbringing. And so my parents very, very well understand those values that are inspiring me to participate in the trial even though they are, of course, you know, concerned as parents will be.
1: Nir, quickly, um, does the university support what you're doing? And has the medical school at the university weighed in on these efforts at all? The university
7: doesn't have an opinion about this. I have many colleagues who wrote me individually how much they support this. Uh, but um, there are obviously others with different opinions, and uh, we don't, as an institution, take a position on this
1: well, we will uh, certainly keep checking in with you and see if this, uh, in fact, does come into uh, fruition. Thank you so much. It's good to have both of you uh, with us tonight. Nir and Gabrielle, we appreciate your time. Thank Let's you. bring, uh, bring Dr. Gottlieb uh, back in with us. Um, Dr. Gottlieb, I'm not sure how our, how our, our viewers would, would accept um, something like this. How should we think about these human challenge trials?
6: Well, the first thing you should know is there's a very, very vigorous debate going on inside the government right now about the utility of doing these challenge studies, including among senior health officials. So this is this is something that's being vigorously discussed right now. There's a lot of practical uh, limitations on your ability to do this. First of all, you'd have to conduct them in a BSL-3 lab. You'd have to synthesize the vaccine uh, to synthesize the virus. There's really only one lab capable of doing that right now at the DOD. Um, so these, the practical limitations on being able to do these studies are pretty significant. And then the other question is that you're going to be doing the challenge studies in people who are otherwise healthy, 20-year-olds, maybe 30-year-olds. And we know that different people in, at different ages experience uh, immunity to this virus very differently. 20-year-olds um, don't mount the same antibody response as a 65-year-old. They also don't have the same reaction to the virus. It's not as virulent in a 20-year-old as it is in a 75-year-old. So if you're doing studies in 20-year-olds, but you're going to license the vaccine for 55-year-olds and 65-year-olds, can you extrapolate the data from a 20-year-old to a 65-year-old? How practical is that? And then the final point is the challenge studies can be helpful in a setting where you can't conduct large-scale studies very easily because you don't have enough people with the infection around. I think we're going to have plenty of people around in the fall um, who unfortunately are infected with this virus, that we're going to be able to conduct very large-scale studies in cities that are experiencing outbreaks. So I don't think there's going to be any shortage of the ability to enroll people in the setting of an outbreak where you can get a pretty quick
1: answer on whether the vaccine's working or not. For this to even happen in the first place, the FDA would have to approve it, at least have a say. If you were still sitting in the chair, would you approve it? Well, it's going to be more than the FDA. I mean, NCI is involved
6: in these discussions, the NIH is. This is going to be, um, you know, a collection of government officials, both public officials and pulling in um, private experts Having various advisory committees and probably pulling together some kind of commission or panel to weigh the merits of doing this, both the practical merits is it worth it? um, Are you going to get a faster answer? Are you going to learn enough doing it? As well as the risks. Now that you have a drug available, Remdesivir, that could potentially rescue people who have a bad outcome, that mitigates the risk to an extent. But I think the bottom line question is how much are you going to learn from doing a challenge study that you wouldn't otherwise learn from conducting a proper study in a population? And in the setting of an outbreak in the fall, the answer might be that you won't learn a whole lot. That said, they may do challenge studies, um, smaller studies as an adjunct to large studies to answer certain kinds of specific questions, but this is being vigorously debated. Personally, um, I have concerns about doing it, um, deliberately exposing people to a deadly pathogen where there could be an adverse outcome when you otherwise don't have to do it. But we've done these things before. We do them for things that are less virulent, like flu. We do it all the time in, in situations like flu. But, uh, you know, coronavirus is, is a more deadly pathogen, and even a 20-year-old can experience a bad
1: outcome. Sounds like the former FDA chief would say no. That's what I hear tonight. I'm reluctant. I'm skeptical. Okay. Dr. Gottlieb, I appreciate your time. We'll talk to you again soon. Like Thanks Scott a lot. Gottlieb, CNBC contributor, the former head of the FDA. More ahead on this CNBC special report.
2: Next, an American business leader... Alta's Mary Dillon, on how she's directing her company through this terrible storm, her path forward for Alta, and her advice for the rest of the country coming up.
8: What does it mean for the shoe store? What does it mean for the restaurant, for the coffee shop?
2: And one American Main Street, finding ways to band together in the eye of the storm. We're back in two minutes.
0: For more than a decade,
2: Tonight, the path forward for big business and the battle on America's main streets. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner.
1: Welcome back. Following another plunge in stocks, let's take another look at futures this evening. It is early volumes light, nonetheless higher across the board. This comes after the Federal Reserve chairman said significant risks to the economy remain the Dow falling more than 500 points, the biggest drops coming from American Express, Walgreens and ExxonMobil. Well, tonight, CEOs on how their industries and business are changing due to the pandemic. Here is the view tonight from the top.
7: It turns out is that both doctors and patients really like telehealth, and uh, we believe that there is something that's here to stay.
9: Yesterday, we announced expanding access to our Pixel at Home kit. When we originally launched that kit, we launched it to people that were either first responders or healthcare professionals on the front line. We did that because we didn't have enough kits to roll it out more
7: broadly. I think we are going to go to contactless pay, which is you know, a decade overdue in this country. I think we're going to start embracing things like Apple Pay and Google Pay and Samsung Pay. All these products are suddenly far more useful.
5: As we push literally hundreds of thousands of students into a purely online environment, we help thousands of instructors and institutions morph and evolve their courses into purely online delivery. And we do that in a way that helps the student understand and develop their program and their learning through all of our assessment material that is really targeted at the individual students.
9: I think you'll see uh, many employees uh, that uh, will continue to work from home, you'll have many that'll get back to the office, and then you'll have some that'll do a little bit of both. Uh, But I think it'll change things like how we think about talent in the future. I think this has given us confidence that we can hire talent anywhere. That's Cisco's Chuck Robbins. Let's bring in another CEO
1: now who has been navigating the path forward towards reopening, Mary Dillon, the CEO of Ulta Beauty. Mary, I'm so happy you're with us tonight. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me here. What is the
1: status of the business right now? You have 1,250 stores, from what I understand. How many have reopened?
0: Yes, well stepping back I'll tell you it has been quite a time right so we've been our e-commerce business has been up and running all along and we've been uh, we launched curbside service I call it kind of beauty to go a couple weeks ago and that's in about 700 stores and then fully reopened stores this week we have 180 that we just reopened on Monday in seven states and so far so good
1: yeah and and how are you thinking about a time frame in opening more stores
0: you know what we're just gonna play that by ear we expect to do it you know pretty rapidly uh, over the next several weeks in waves. Um, we're starting in places. We have a process to decide where we think it makes most sense, of course, mostly collaborating with local and state governments and looking at the state of the disease, looking at our associates' readiness to come back to work. So you'll see us continue to roll. We're going to learn as we go. Um, but, you know, we're excited to be our, – our guests are very excited to be buying beauty. And, uh, and we even have in some of our stores our hair salons are up and running. And, of course, all new safe procedures. But you can imagine there's a lot of pent-up demand for haircut and color and style. Uh,
1: absolutely. Uh, from yours truly, by the way. Uh, I, can't, <laughs> I can't think of another uh, business with more personal contact. It is, it is literally a hand-to-face business, a person-to-person business. How will that affect you moving forward?
0: Well, you know, we've always seen beauty as physical and digital and emotional and we have plenty of levers in place and ways for guests to engage with us. So we know, for example, that as if we when we became an e-commerce only business two months ago, uh, demand was very strong. So we see that there's a lot of demand for all aspects of many aspects of beauty. Um, we have tools like something we call Glam Lab that's on our app that has really taken off and it's, it's basically you know, using artificial reality to, to look at makeup colors and even shapes of your brows and color of foundation on your skin in a really beautifully seamless digital way. And so we expect that that will certainly continue to grow. But a lot of our guests love the in-store experience, which is also about browsing, and it's about seeing all the wonderful products and engaging with our associates who will be very able to give them at an at a appropriately socially distanced space give them great advice and things to learn about beauty. So we feel that's all gonna be it's we're moving in all the right directions. And as I mentioned with services, you know, we've really invented a new way to do the hair services to start that are very safe. We've collaborated with medical experts past the first month that we're open for our healthcare providers, we're offering half price cutting styles uh, to really thank them for what they've done. So so we believe there's a way to make this work. I would just say all of retail is working together to make it safe for people to go back and shop.
1: Yeah, thinking about you guys, it's a tough spot you're in. Do me a favor, Mary, stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, historian Walter Isaacson joins the conversation next as we discuss the path
2: forward for big
9: business in this country.
2: Also tonight...
9: We will probably lose uh, for the month of April, be down 70%.
2: How business owners on one American main street are battling the economic impact of the virus that has changed their lives so dramatically, so quickly. Before the break, images from across the world on this 136th day of the global pandemic.
1: back in his promise joining us now to discuss the path forward for business is CNBC contributor Walter Isaacson he is history professor at Tulane University and advisory partner at Perella Weinberg Ulta Beauty CEO Mary Dillon of course still with us as Walter joins us from the beautiful French Quarter in New Orleans Walter I'm glad you're with us as well CEOs like Mary have such a tough job today in this crisis how should they be thinking about the future of big business in this country
10: CEOs like Mary are the most important people right now in the next few weeks because we're going to have to start reopening some. Right across the street, it's not one of Mary's shops, but there's salon diversions. You can see the paper shop on the corner. These small businesses, these franchises, these medium sized businesses, my barber shop, whatever, in the next month or so, they're going to have to reopen and do it safely. We're not sure. This is a really weird virus. So we're not sure how socially distant you have to be in order to be safe. So we have to be careful. we got to make sure people wear masks whenever possible. And we got to make sure that we keep the social distancing, but still try to reopen our businesses. It's going to be a delicate balancing act. In Louisiana, we're starting it. In New Orleans, we're starting it on Friday night. And I hope we can do it. Carefully.
1: Mary, I know you're thinking about this every day. One of the challenges, of course, as I mentioned, you know, the hardship that, that you're having to, to deal with is that big business doesn't become smaller business on the other side of this. How do you think about that?
0: Well, I would say I'll just step back and say thank you, Walter, for your comments. And you're absolutely right that business is working. I've never seen CEOs collaborate better across every industry. Uh, across retail to do exactly, as you said, which is figure out how we can do this safely as well, you know, for our guests and our employees, as well as, you know, reopen the economy. And so I think everybody's going to be looking at this very closely, step-by-step, but really joining hands around the lens of, chase, you know, safe shopping practices, which we're all deploying. Um, and you mentioned masks. I mean, in retail, we're we're requiring, adult duty all, all of our associates to wear masks. And we're encouraging guests to wear masks because it, it's, it's really respectful to our employees and really helps prevent the spread of the disease.
10: You know, Mary, it's Walter here. I was on your website, and it's great. And it's almost a, like 12-part program, you're saying, to the customers. Here's what we're going to try to do for you. We're going to have hand sanitizers. We're going to have masks. We're going to give you, you know, those sort of things. Tell me what you're thinking when you say to yourself, How do I not only be safe for my customer, make sure they feel safe?
0: Well, it's exactly that. It's really being transparent and open. But it starts with our associates, and we really have spent the time to listen to them and train them, help them feel comfortable with all the steps that we're taking, and then making the journey to the customer really clear and obvious. So through every point of communication, but most importantly in the stores, that they can see signs, they can see the social distancing markers, they can see the map, but they can also order and have a curbside pick up. You know, I, we call that beauty to go. And uh, there's giving uh, guests uh, choices and aligning with other retailers so that whatever retailer you go to, you should feel and be safe.
10: So, Mary, tell me, how does the payroll protection program affect you all? And is it are you all franchises and does it affect each person?
0: Well, no, we actually, we own 1,250 stores across the U.S. I'm getting a lot of backlash. I hope you guys aren't hearing that. Uh, But anyway, so uh, in terms of the noise. But anyway, so we've got 1,250 stores across the U.S., and those those are not grant We are, you know, we've uh, looked at all aspects of the stimulus plan, and one that's been helpful to our associates, frankly, is the CARES Act and the Unemployment Insurance Expansion. Uh, Because unfortunately, like many retailers, we have to furlough uh, quite a few people, but we also felt that that system and that program was going to be very helpful in the meantime before we bring it back.
1: We were. Uh, we were hearing that. I'm, I'm, we're going to try and work on that that issue, uh, Mary, and get back to you if we can. I want you
10: to know that there's no noise like that down here in New Orleans. <laughs> we're pretty calm down here. I don't know. Maybe
1: maybe very late at night on Bourbon Street, there might be uh, no, Oh, Walter don't
10: walk away from here.
1: Let me ask you, um, people like Mary have, have to think long and hard about the kind of corporate citizen they want to mm. be right now, especially as a, a very big business with a lot of employees because, Walter, they must know that they're going to be judged uh, after this crisis on how they performed for their customers and their own people during this crisis, right?
10: I just had a conversation last night with Mark Cuban, who's on your network, Mm -hmm. uh, and he was saying this is going to be the big thing for corporations is, did you have a bond with your workers? Were you transparent with them? Did you have a bond with your customers? And you can try to, you know, everybody's struggling here. They're struggling to make ends meet. They're struggling sometimes not to have to shut down. But in that struggle, you got to prioritize the fact that you got to do what's best for your employees. Because uh, in the end, you're going to want to reopen and reopen strong. I think we're going to see this change the sense of American business, especially, you know, retail businesses, that a lot of it is about compassion and loyalty.
1: And, and Mary, Walter's so right. You're back with us. I'm, I'm glad to have you, have you back. You, you only get one chance to do this and to do it the right way. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about that, of, of being a good corporate citizen. So your thought of that on the other side of this, by your customers and your own employees.
0: Yes. Well, I would say that our associates are at the heart of everything we do. And we have been transparent. We have had their health and safety at the top of our minds as well as that of our customers. And I've seen that across everybody I know on scale. I know many more CEOs today than I did two months ago. And so I think Walter's right. This is the time that we will be judged by our actions, um, but we might not get it perfect. We are going to be humble and transparent and listen and learn and, you know, bring duty back. Also duty ready.
1: We wish you well, Mary. Thanks so much for being with us, Walter. We'll talk to you again soon. Appreciate your time so much as well.
10: Hey, see you again, Scott. You That's Stay Walter right. Isaacson
1: joining us there, Mary Dillon, as well. Up next tonight, how shop owners on one charming Main Street are banding together, plus our nightly salute to America's restaurants. The entrepreneurial spirit is fighting for survival on Main Street, USA. Tonight, Andrea Day has the story of three business owners in Southern Georgia caught in the crisis. Thomasville is located 20 miles north of Tallahassee, just above
9: the Florida-Georgia border.
8: Really quaint, like Stars Hollow from Gilmore Girls kind of city.
9: The restaurants, all the boutiques, just a very incredible downtown.
0: But the pandemic has hit Main Street hard, leaving the owner of this jewelry store reeling.
9: We will probably lose, uh, for the month of April, be down 70%. For me, and for a lot of retail jewelers, this has been crushing because this time of the year, March, April, May, June, is bridal season. We actually sell more engagement rings in the springtime than we do at Christmas. So it's it's very scary. 30% of normal revenue does not get it done, even with the assistance from the PPP program and... Our overhead in this type of business is very, very high. We have marketing contracts, we have advertising contracts, we have our insurance on our
8: product.
0: Down the street, a bookstore that's been open for 30 years is in crisis mode.
8: We really had to shift from an in-store model with beautiful displays, and we have really become a shipping station. Boxes and packing materials everywhere. We are right now shipping out hundreds of orders every week but we are still offering curbside pickup, and then we're doing free local deliveries. I'm worried about my neighbors. What does it mean for the shoe store? What does it mean for the restaurant, for the coffee shop?
1: Our sales immediately dropped about 50%. When you dry up like that, you know, you
4: really do struggle along. Paying your bills, paying employees, when your cash is reduced by half, it's, it's really tough. We've started doing delivery, curbside
8: pickup, and that sort of thing. How can we reinvent the wheel? Basically, you're rebuilding a business plan 10 years in. I think we can make it through it, and I hope things
1: will
9: get back to normal. It's going to be tough. We want to support each other.
8: I want us all to survive because we are very much reliant on being a shoppable, walkable, adorable downtown.
1: That was Andrea Day reporting for us. As you know by now, each night we're giving a shout out to restaurants around the country continuing to operate in this crisis. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner, CNBC. Use the hashtag thanksforthegrub with the name and town of your favorite restaurant. And now you can even send us a picture, too. Tonight, we are highlighting Big Bill's New York Pizza in Centennial, Colorado, the China Cafe in Novi, Michigan, Bavarian Lodge in Lyle, Illinois, Roy's Barbecue in Russellville, Kentucky, and the Kentucky and Dish Society in Houston, Texas. We and all your loyal customers appreciate everything you're doing, and we are rooting for you. On day 136 of this coronavirus pandemic, here are the latest headlines tonight. President Trump says the Democrats' proposed $3 trillion relief package is dead on arrival. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says he's concerned about a prolonged recession and weak recovery. The Dow falling more than 500 points today. We give you your first look at how the day is setting up for tomorrow. And we are positive, albeit slightly. And of course, it is early, but we're green across the board. You can go to CNBC.com all night long for up-to-the-minute information on the markets and the coronavirus. We are back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange at 7 p.m. for Markets in Turmoil. You can find me again tomorrow as well on the Halftime Report at noon Eastern. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Please stay safe. Shark Tank is next.